It's Monday, April 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden has detailed his American Jobs Plan, a $2 trillion jobs and infrastructure plan focused on rebuilding 20,000 miles of roads, expanding access to clean water, broadband, extra care for the elderly, and more. While infrastructure usually gets bipartisan support, this will be a tough sell for the high price tag and how to pay for it, increased taxes on corporations. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for what's in the plan. Next, the pandemic flipped the educational system upside down last year. It changed so much for students, but it also made it difficult for teachers. Making worse a trend that was already happening before the pandemic, fewer students are wanting to pursue teaching. Low pay was already making people think twice, but now add in the perceived increase in risk. Emma Goldberg, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for more. Finally, as the country slowly gets back to normal, people are ready to party again. Bar and restaurant owners are getting prepared for an influx of patrons ready to get wild. And the hottest thing to put on your dating profile right now is that vaccination selfie. Lisa Bonos, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for the party comeback and a possible roaring 2020. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The president has outlined an extraordinary, broad, bold vision to invest in America, and we begin the discussion on Capitol Hill. We believe there is room for compromise, but but room for bipartisan support. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about the uh, big infrastructure plan that President Joe Biden announced this past week. It's going to cost about $2 trillion. And, and as people may remember, we talked about this last week, Ginger. It's going to be broken up into two parts. So mid-April, we'll get the second part of this plan. But the first part so far, $2 trillion. It's got a lot of stuff in there, uh, rebuilding 20,000 miles of roads, uh, expanding access to clean water, which is super important, broadband. They want to invest and care for the elderly. President Biden says this is a huge proposal. He called it a once-in-a-generation investment in America. It's called the American Jobs Plan. So, Ginger, let's walk through some of the particulars. What are we seeing in this bill? We know the president talked regularly, daily, relentlessly about his desire to invest in infrastructure if he was elected. And, and we're seeing all of that sort of in one place. Roads, bridges, airports, railroads, new rail lines, old rail lines. And then you talk a little bit, you mentioned some of the less traditionally thought of infrastructure items like roads and bridges and some of the stuff that they say is sort of the human infrastructure that allows our country's economy to hum. One of those being home health. So a big investment in spending for elderly care. We know our nation is facing more and more baby boomers who are going to be retiring in the coming years and are going to need home health care. And this would put a lot of money into creating systems and subsidizing that care in a way that would keep those people taken care of. Now, the price tag is obviously huge, $2 trillion. This is coming off of the COVID relief bill, which was just about $2 trillion also. So that's going to be a huge hurdle. But, uh, I mean, generally, infrastructure projects are viewed favorably, at least when it comes to representatives and senators. Projects in their own states are important for the local economies. What kind of pressure is this going to face them? 
last week when Biden rolled out this whole proposal, he spoke in Pittsburgh and he made a big appeal for bipartisan cooperation. He pointed out that roads and bridges are often things that Republicans and Democrats can unify behind. But it's not just roads and bridges. And there are some things in there that we know that Republicans don't like. We also heard Mitch McConnell on Thursday in Kentucky vowing to fight every piece of it. Now, look, he doesn't dislike roads and bridges and they need roads and bridges just as much in Kentucky as anywhere else. Republicans are making the case that this is sort of a grab bag of everything that Democrats want to do and that it's too big and that it costs too much. So getting this through with Republican support in its current form, I think is going to be impossible. And that means choices are going to face the president. He can either pare the bill down, negotiate with Republicans and find the parts where they can get compromise, which often means more than just either side would have done if it was on their own. Or his other option is to sort of use that parliamentary maneuver they use for the COVID relief bill to try to do this without Republicans. And just like we saw with the COVID relief bill, where some pieces of it, like raising the minimum wage, had to be cut in order to use that little trick, there would be pieces of this proposal that would also have to be cut um, if they were to try to do it without Republicans. All right. One of the big things, how we're going to pay for it. Everybody's talking a lot about taxes. President Biden has said no taxes are going to go up for people and families making over $400,000. But uh, there there would be probably taxes going up on corporations. Pretty much the Trump tax cuts would probably go away. So not all of the Trump tax cuts would go away, but you're right. There would be a tax increase for corporations currently at a rate of 21%. Democrats are talking about something like 28%. It was higher in the 30s when Republicans cut tax rates four years ago. But also keep in mind, they did a lot of other reorganizing of the tax code and changed a lot of other pieces of it, which corporations contended sort of offset some of those reductions in the rate. But it would be reconsidering those things, using the corporate tax to pay for some of this. There would be a tax increase for people who make more than $400,000 a year or families that make more than $400,000 a year. And there is talk about some other specialty taxes, things like a capital gains tax for those who inherit more than $25 million whenever a family member dies. And then there's also already been some moderate Democrats who said that they're drawing a line in the sand and they won't vote for a package that doesn't cut a tax, specifically a state and local tax deduction that was a new cap was placed on it by the Republicans when they passed their tax package. What it effectively did was create a tax increase for people who live in really high tax, high cost areas. Uh, You're talking about your Los Angeleses and your New Yorks and your Washington DCs. And that that hit the middle class people who saw their taxes go up and they want also known as SALT, that tax cap to be taken away, which would be in effect a tax cut for the middle class. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. How can these people figure out how to run a school during a pandemic safely with no additional funding. They've been handed an impossible task and they're failing at it. Joining us now is Emma Goldberg, reporter at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thank you so much for having me on. We've talked a lot on the podcast about how the pandemic has affected schools and our students, uh, you know, teachers as well. One of the main things, obviously, the falling behind in the academics is one thing. 
the mental health of students and teachers has been another issue. But now we're also seeing kind of an exacerbation of something that was already happening before the pandemic. Fewer people wanting to be teachers, or at least people applying to programs to be teachers. And we're just kind of seeing that uh, intensify with the pandemic. There's been a lot of things, fear for your health, obviously, and then just kind of all the added things that have come along with the remote learning, hybrid school learning. It's just really been a difficult go. So Emma, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with fewer students wanting to pursue uh, their teaching degrees. So I think we know the pandemic has upended a lot of different professions, but as you kind of alluded to just now, few more so than teaching. You know, people are either going into work in person and there's that concern for their own safety and health, or they're teaching remotely or in some hybrid format, which can be really challenging in terms of getting the results you want to see for your students. So I spoke with the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education, which did a survey of all their member institutions, and they did find that enrollment is down at both undergraduate and graduate level teaching programs. For undergraduate levels, it's almost 20%. For graduate level, just about 10% of a, a decline in enrollment this year. So tell me now a, a little bit about why they think enrollment is down. You know, as I mentioned, a lot of things having to do with the pandemic, but historically also there's a lot of dissatisfaction with low pay, the working conditions and the tough teachers that are put in having to take care of so many kids, really. So expand on that, if you could, please. This is a long-running problem. For years, enrollment has been dropping at both graduate and undergraduate level teaching programs. And that low pay compared to other professions that require a similar level of education is often cited as one of the main reasons. So a public school teacher might make around $61,000 a year, but that's lower than people with similar levels of education, including advanced degrees. So that's been a long-running problem. But then suddenly you add the pandemic which brings a whole slew of other problems for teachers from, you know, having to go in in person and be potentially exposed. Although, you know, there is that research showing that there isn't as much of a risk of transmission in schools and with kids, but it still, you know, is a challenge just having to go in and do your work in person when other people are teleworking. And then the other is just all the challenges of remote teaching. Teachers said a lot of the trainees as I spoke to said they had looked forward to being in the classroom, being able to form real emotional, personal connections. And that's a lot harder to do when you're on Zoom with your students. So some of the motives for why they wanted to go into the profession in the first place might have been kind of taken away during the pandemic. Right. And there's a lot of students also that are in flux. They've gone through maybe half of a program or half the years of schooling that they need to get their credentials and all, and they might be stuck. They might be considering other uh, avenues, other types of employment where skills can be transferable, or they said, hey, I'm, I'm so far in this, I got to finish now. And then after that, the training that comes with it, you know, you have to be placed in classrooms and be trained. And some of that has been taken away altogether because of the pandemic. If it's remote schooling, I mean, how can you get into a classroom and start working with kids? So that's been another difficulty for students and people trying to become teachers. Exactly. I spoke with a lot of different students across the country who are studying to be teachers right now, and I heard a real range of reactions. I mean, some of them really are considering switching to different career paths. Some of them are looking for career paths that have transferable skills, like human resources, because they're saying, you know, I realize this is not what I want to do. I want to I want to take my skills and apply it to something else that might be easier or higher paying. And some of them are sticking it out and they're saying this has actually reinforced 
my reasoning for wanting to go into the profession. I did talk to a lot of students who said more so than ever this year, they're aware of how deeply teachers are needed. And so this is only reinforcing their desire to do it. So I heard a broad range of responses. This decrease in in teachers and, and uh, people applying to these programs hasn't been happening everywhere, though. I think in California, uh, California State University, Long Beach still saw some enrollment climb up for them. So it's not everywhere, but this is just kind of looking forward towards a possible shortage of these other trends continue. Exactly. And, you know, that is a little bit of a problem when you consider that actually as schools begin to open more and more in person, we're actually going to need more teachers, most likely, because a, a lot of schools are hoping to have smaller class sizes to allow students to social distance from one another, especially while children still aren't eligible for the vaccine. So, you know, you are looking to have smaller class sizes, and at the same time, you might have fewer teachers to draw from, a smaller pool. So it's hard if you want to bring on more staff that you're facing a potential shortage. Emma Goldberg, reporter at the New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. You go on Tinder these days, and the hottest thing is mentioning if you're vaccinated or even putting the dates of your shots in there as kind of code for saying you're up for hooking up again. Joining us now is Lisa Bonos, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Thanks for having me. We're all ready to get back to normal again, to start our social lives again, and and, and really just that return to normalcy, kind of that balance of uh, having fun and and not it being all doom and gloom and worried about getting sick. So I know everybody's looking forward to this. And what a lot of people have been talking about is if we're getting ready for the roaring 2020s, a lot of people draw these callbacks to 1918 and the flu pandemic there. What happened right after that? The roaring 20s. Obviously, there was some different circumstances back then, and it might not be the same or as extreme as it was back then this time around, but still people are ready for it. So, Lisa, you spoke to a bunch of people kind of in anticipation of this and how we just want to get back at it. So tell us a little bit about that, please. I spoke to a lot of people that are starting to socialize again. Most of them that are doing that are vaccinated. That doesn't necessarily mean that they have a lot of others to socialize with. You go on Tinder these days and the hottest thing is mentioning if you're vaccinated or even putting the dates of your shots in there as kind of code for saying you're up for hooking up again. Even social groups are popping up for vaccinated folks only, which experts say can have some problems as well. You know, it's not necessarily great to assume that everyone who's vaccinated is therefore safe, but that is what's happening right now. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the dating app side of this, because I know during the pandemic for singles, it was an especially lonely and isolating time in many cases. A lot of the connections that people were making were online only, and you know they're ready to make that transition from the digital to the physical. And as you mentioned, you know a lot of people are putting this on their profile saying, hey, I'm fully vaccinated, I'm ready to go. Tinder is giving out 1,000 free coronavirus tests to encourage daters to meet in person. So we're gearing up for that. And like you said, you mentioned people are putting it on their profile saying, you know, I'm vaccinated. It's the thing that people are are looking out for. And, you know, I spoke to one 28 year old who basically said that he can't wait to take, you know, a selfie when he's getting his vaccine and put that in his 
his dating profiles, mainly because he hasn't uploaded any new photos in the past year. It's like the biggest event of the year for a lot of people. And it also signals kind of a comfort with getting back out there and meeting strangers in person again. Primarily all these people that you're talking about, at least for your piece, are people that have been vaccinated and kind of them trying to get back into it. People are even doing meetup groups specifically for vaccinated people. And you mentioned that in the article, too, that these people are aware that this kind of sounds a little exclusive sometimes. People that might not have the opportunity yet to go get the vaccine could feel a little left out. One woman that I spoke to in Washington, D.C., created one of these meetup groups for vaccinated people, specifically because she didn't have a lot of other friends that were vaccinated and her her friends that were still waiting for their shots. All they wanted to do was Zoom and she just wanted to get out there and meet new people again. I mean, that said, when these groups are meeting up, they are still mostly meeting outdoors and doing things that are sort of pandemic safe or pandemic friendly anyway. But I think it, it signals folks' hunger to have new experiences again and just to meet new people. Remember when we used to do that? (laughs) And then you pose a question, too, in your article. How will vaccinated people mingle with those that could be labeled anti-vaxxers, maybe just are hesitant or don't want the vaccine? You know, there's a lot of people that are willing to cancel dates or not go out with somebody because of that. Okay, Cupid surveyed their users and found that 40% of those that responded to the survey said they would cancel a date with somebody who didn't want to get vaccinated. People are making kind of blanket judgments about others based on whether or not they're willing to get the vaccine, which, you know, there's always a deal breaker of the moment. Other singles say they won't disqualify somebody specifically because they're not going to get the vaccine, but they just want to know that that person believes that COVID is real. You know, some of these vaccine skeptics might change their minds too, I think, once they see others around them get the vaccine and feel okay. But it's certainly the deal breaker of the moment. So what are we expecting? You know, we know the appetite is there. We're seeing what's going on in Miami Beach for spring break. Tons of people going out. President Biden even said that July 4th, could be that comeback moment for the country where he envisions people doing their backyard barbecues and just treating it like a normal 4th of July holiday. What are we expecting? Are we going to see this roaring 2020s? Because as I mentioned in the beginning, the circumstances are different from 1918 and the, and the 20s. So it might not be the same exactly. I'm predicting it's going to be more of a light purr than a roar. But, you know, one difference between now and the 1920s is that back then, 100 years ago, we not only saw the end of a pandemic, but also at the same time, the end of a war. And in both of those instances, it was mostly young people that were dying, both from the flu and from the war. And so if you were alive at the end of that, it was like time to celebrate that fact that you were alive and carpe diem. And this time, young people are, you know, can be responsible for spreading the disease. And it's mostly old people that are dying. And we also did not just emerge from a war. So I'm not sure it's going to be as wild as that. But when I speak to bar and restaurant owners, they're certainly concerned that people are not going to take social distancing seriously when they're out and want to push tables together and, and things like that that we still can't do. Lisa Bonos, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at 
Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.